This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, New Book Network listeners. Today's podcast is on history and literacy, and we are welcoming Professor Harvey J. Graff, the author of The Literacy Myth, Literacy and Social Structure in the 19th Century City, to the show. As always, I'm your NBN host, Nathan Moore. Dr. Graff arrived at Ohio State University in 2004, where he directed the New Literacy Studies Initiative there. But his story began much earlier, and the book we are discussing today was released in 1979. And even before that, his romanticism of the 1960s school reform and literacy campaigns, along with his relationships with graduate school and his advisors, really kindled a spark about what the interdisciplinary field of literacy could be. Harvey J. Graff has a BA from Northwestern University and an MA and PhD from the University of Toronto. Graff taught courses at the University of Texas at Dallas and the University of Texas at San Antonio, between 1975 and 2004. Dr. Graff's other books are Conflicting Paths, Growing Up in America, and Undisciplining Knowledge, Interdisciplinarity in the 20th Century. Graff also published an article in 2010 about today's topic, The Literacy Myth at 30, commemorating three decades of research. So, Dr. Graff, would you like to tell your audience about the tumultuous 1960s and how all of that led to the literacy myth in 1979? Certainly, and I'm delighted to be here, and I want to thank Nathan for inviting me. Um, Tumultuous is not the word I would use personally because I lived through them, but um, in many ways... I grew up in the 1960s. I was born in 1949. I was in the middle of the baby boom generation. Um, My family were moderate Democrats. I grew up committed to civil rights, equality, justice. Um, Among the formative influences for me was in about 1964, we were doing a boycott of grapes grown by migrant laborers, particularly in California. And there was a movement to organize the laborers led by Cesar Chavez. And a friend's father took my high school friend and I to a local grocery store to be part of the boycott. I lost my taste for grapes forever, at least for raw grapes. And it really started my career as a scholar and an activist. I was very involved in what we now call campus radicalism as a college student. Um, In many ways, that's another probably whole program for Nathan. But um, the late 60s were a very special time for 
students. Um, this is not remembered. In fact, some of my current writing is trying to remind people of the exceptional nature, particularly of faculty and student relationships. For example, when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern, most of my professors, including some very conservative ones, sought to be my advisors and my teachers and my adult friends. My undergraduate advisor was a conservative New Englander with all his degrees from Princeton. In the spring, when spring came to Evanston, just north of Chicago, he would put on long shorts, high knee socks, a coat and tie, and go lecture like that. But he took me, his shaggy-haired campus radical, home for dinner with his family. And when I was looking for graduate schools, we spent literally hours in his office pouring over the guide to departments of history. I last saw him first time my wife and I went to, to London. He was assistant cultural attaché at the American um, consulate in London. We had lunch with him and his family in the backyard of his rental home. Um, people like that who could be my advisor, my friend, who could still criticize me intellectually, but reach out to have collegial relationships across ages, across ranks, were fundamental to forming me as a student, as a young professor, and still high function in retirement. When I went to graduate school and we decided to leave the United States. We were in Canada for five years. My woman who became my wife did half her BA at Northwestern, half at Toronto. I did my MA and PhD at Toronto. And I was very fortunate to discover the then young, but very soon eminent scholar, Michael Katz who took me in as his advisee. Quickly, he became one of my best friends until he died. My wife and I are still in close touch with his children and his widow. And Michael taught me several fundamental things that are not part of graduate education today. Number one, a professor and an advisor can be a friend and still a firm, constructive critic. There's no necessary contradiction between those two roles. And I've tried to model that in my own work with my own students since the mid-1970s. Michael also taught me, and I published an essay about this in the Times Higher Ed in England, just within the last month, that one could be a committed scholar and have a strong point of view and still be an objective, reputable scholar as long as you did your homework. You did your research thoroughly. You presented your data transparently. 
you made your arguments and your assumptions clear, then you could follow that to what you saw as its logical conclusion. Far too often in scholarship, particularly in the humanities and social sciences, we confuse objectivity with neutrality. That's a very dangerous error. And too often, conservative critics turn that on its head and take other people's strong arguments as a sign of subjectivity, but never their own. So those are some of the things from the 60s I would like to remind people of. More directly, and I'm following Nathan's lead and questions that he shared with me in advance, um, I, my work over decades on literacy, both historically and the implications of that history today, was born in the 60s and in the 70s. The 60s were an intense time of criticism of schooling at all levels from beginning elementary schooling through colleges. The classics of the 50s include books that have been forgotten. Paul Goodman, a tremendous writer and critic, wrote a book that everyone should read called Growing Up Absurd. A very young Jonathan Kozel, an excellent journalist who wrote a landmark book called Death at an Early Age, and he followed it with another half dozen books. Um, the Brazilian educational theorist, Paulo Ferreira, wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. These were extremely influential in the 60s and 70s. Ferreira's work was one of the foundations for the Cuban educational crusade, where they pioneered teenagers teaching younger people and older adults the slogan, each one, teach one, it led to Cuba's having the highest literacy rate in the world, despite the chaos and the poverty of its early communist regime. Things that American liberals and conservatives never have really understood how those contradictions can exist. So I got to graduate school with this as part of let's say, part of my maturing intellectual and social commitment. In my third semester with Michael Katz, I took a seminar about the new social history, about what we called then, <clears throat> we called it urban social structure. Well, had shifted from his first couple books to transform the history of American education by adding complexity, showing the early school reform, the common school in Massachusetts, Horace Mann, and all that, were complicated. It wasn't a pure vision of equality, but had lots of discrimination, battle between. Catholic immigrants at separate schools and public schools was one issue. Undereducating the working class was another. Michael's dissertation 
the first book, The Irony of Early School Reform, foreshadowed his later work, um, particularly on social service reform and a series of books on poverty and the urban middle class. At the time, in 1971, Michael had just started a then very innovative quantitative social history project studying the history first of the Canadian former industrial city of Hamilton, Ontario, um, in between Buffalo and the border, or Niagara Falls on the border, and Toronto. And every student in this class had to do a seminar paper based on the database that he was developing. Um, for any of you who are familiar with quantitative historical or social research, you'll shuffle when I talk about how primitive it was. Um, my first paper was based on 80-column IBM punch cards and analyzed on a mechanical card sorter, pre-computer. And that paper was a test to see if the unusual category on the 1861 Canadian National Census, asking if people could read or write, if it was a reliable indicator. And in that paper, I demonstrated that within certain interpretive limits, it was very reliable and could be used to link literacy, to look at relationships between people who had some degree of ability to read and write and their immigration status, place of birth, their age, their occupation, their ethnicity, their residence. Um, when I study mushroomed over the next three years into my dissertation, we advanced from punch cards and card sorters to magnetic tape and a computer the size, almost the size of the floor of my four-story, 100-year-old house in Columbus, Ohio. So my, my own history as a beginning scholar paralleled the way the new social history, what we discovered in the mid-60s, that yes, there was a history of slaves and slavery. It wasn't just a history of slave owners. And yes, there was a history of working people and immigrants. It wasn't the history only of the institutions that tried to change them. In my case, I was able to demonstrate that there was a history of deliverance, of people who could not leave a written record. And centuries before oral history, by finding them on what we call the manuscript census, the microfilms of the handwritten documents, as people were doing in American history, British history, French history, at the same time that the, the so-called new histories started in France, then moved to England, then came to the US and to Canada. The history that I learned as a student, that students today are not being taught. It's a real loss that today's students 
are not being taught the history of their own fields. So my interest and commitment to equality and school reform, having read, starting as an undergraduate, the classics, um, Summerhill, a British story over British private school that pioneered child-centered education, a book that we all read in the mid to late 60s. That you seldom hear anyone other than a specialist in educational thought refer to. These were broad currents. And for me, they came together, social currents, um, this I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm still growing up and maturing, which I still am doing at age 73. Um, advisors, not only Michael Katz, but an incredible French historian who I'm going to visit in Toronto in a month, Natalie Zeman Davis, who was working on the history of oral culture and one person in a village leading to a population of non-readers. Natalie is 95. She's still writing books. My wife took the first course in the history of women taught in Canada, co-taught by Natalie Davis, and um, an Australian woman who became an American historian, Jill Conway, who became the first woman president of Smith College in 1975. So in ways that are true, and I don't want to sound grandiose, my own education and my foundations as a scholar are part of a critical set of historical conjunctions. And I would like all listeners to understand there is a historical context. There are key factors, there are contradictions, there are conflicts in the making of all of us in terms, and I'll pause at a moment, but in terms of Nathan's introduction. Um, I never got away from the history of literacy. I published more books about it, in, and many of them have been translated to a number of languages. They took me around the world. They took me to speak with the United Nations. They earned me honorary PhDs. They made me friends all over the globe. Um, and what Michael Katz taught me, and my commitment from Nathan's term, the tumultuous 60s, shaped my scholarship, first in literacy, then a pretty direct line to the history of children and youth. Another line, living in Dallas, being an urban historian. I wrote the first serious critical history of Dallas, Texas, called The Dallas Myth. Some of this came together in a book published in 2015. It was a history of interdisciplinarity, a critique of a lot of the silliness, but a strong argument that interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary has a history, it wasn't invented tomorrow, and it can exist in a variety of different ways. You don't have to have a college of interdisciplinary. You don't have to have a department. It can occur within disciplines, across disciplines, outside. They're all valid. There's a tremendous amount of foolishness talk about that. But uh, Nathan is my host, and I've been talking at length, so 
let me give the microphone back to Nathan. No, that's totally fine. Um, what has been your numerical or quantitative approach to your studies on literacy? I know you probably wanted to be as empirical as possible. Um, and so we can, you know, move away from history a little bit and look at your quantitative approach to literacy. Sure. And that's, that's an important question in the historical context to which I'm speaking. Um, the new social history starts in the late 50s, blossoms by the mid-60s. Classic books that people, again, are forgetting. Um, Peter Laszlo's book, The World We Have Lost, a classic of the mid-60s. Um, Laszlo was a political historian of political philosophy who was very influenced by the Annals School in France and along with the economic historian Tony Wrigley started the Cambridge Group for the History of Population and Social Structure to try and get databases. In their case, they collected parish registers, births, deaths, marriages, to try and establish a foundational understanding of the population history of the United Kingdom. This came to the U.S. first in American colonial history. The landmarks of the late 60s were studies of tax. John Demos, Philip Brevet. Kenneth Lockridge, many of them students of an earlier generation of a little bit less innovative but still new thinkers at Harvard, Bernard Bailey is the name. It occurred also in 19th century studies. There the name was Oscar Hanlon, a foundational historian of immigrants among Hanlon's students was Stephen Thernstrom, whose book studying the immigrant working class of Newburyport, Massachusetts, a town not far from Boston, showed that we could study with the use of censuses, the constitution, and intergenerational change among the working class population the next generation would extend the same sources to establish a much more foundational, much more documented history of all the people. Some of this led into a new critical history of other classes. Some of it led into the beginnings of the history of women, which followed, followed chronologically, that is, the shifts I'm talking about. What's very important, and Nathan's questions opens the door to this, is that people like Katz taught me that numbers never stand alone. Numbers do not, quote unquote, speak. Numbers do not answer a question. They can add a sense of precision they can answer questions, for example, about 
the lives of people who left no memoirs or letters or autobiographies. But I was taught as a student that I had to do quantitative and qualitative research. And my goal was to use each kind to help interpret the other. So my dissertation on 19th century urban literacy, it led to my first book, The Literacy Myth, in 1979, used quantitative and qualitative, traditional historical records, newspapers, government documents, um, some personal records where I could find them. Um, later critics, well, critics at the time and later, tried to caricature the new social history as people talking numbers. In my first job at the University of Texas at Dallas, a colleague, and I'll say as little about this person as possible because I have nothing good to say about her, when she first met me and heard what my research was about, she actually asked me, if, said, do you speak in numbers? I had no idea what she meant. I will just add that she was a British anti-Semite who did her best to keep me from getting tenure. But I'm going to censure myself now because talking about that person only reminds people that universities are full of the good, bad, and the in-between. So quantification is useful for some topics. It's particularly useful where measurement matters, economic history. It's best used in conjunction with other sources. And I have the good fortune to have professors like Michael Katz. Natalie Davis did not do quantitative work, but she was always receptive to it. So was Jill Conway. So were my other advisors. And these are people that went from being my teachers and advisors to being my friends and my wife's friends as well, and the ones who are alive, like Natalie Davis at 95, remain actively our friends. She emails me at least once a week. Those are the kind of relationships that I want to remind all students and all faculty. They used to be much more common. They're absolutely critical to achieving the goals of education as they should be known. For many, many reasons, we've lost sight of them over the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, and so your argument about literacy being related to social mobility, um, can you tell your audience about what your thesis is and your argument, and also about some of the criticisms you might have garnered from your writing on the literacy myth? Sure. Um, the general approach to literacy that dominated when I started my research was mainly from psychology, classics, a little bit of anthropology, um, a lot from education. It was much more ideological than empirical, whether quantitative or qualitative. And in a nutshell, the, I'm not going to say the argument, I'm going to say the belief was that 
literacy by itself, an individual learning to read or write, was totally transformative. That history, society, personal situations did not matter. Anyone who learned to read or write should be able to become a great success story. And if she or he didn't, or I'll modernize my language, if they, she, or he didn't, it was their fault. Classic form of blaming the victim. What my studies and the studies of my colleagues, um, Roger Schofield in France, several scholars, Roger Schofield in England, several scholars in France, a little later, Italian and Spanish scholars, and we all got to know each other, and a new generation of people working in psychology, some foundational work on cognitive psychology done in Africa by Scribner and Cole, um, educational student Shirley Bryce Heath, who did ethnographies in Florida. Um, together, from a handful of different disciplines that came together by the 80s under the very general heading, the new literacy studies. We refuted the presumption that literacy by itself was transformative, and we demonstrated across different disciplines, across time periods, that literacy and lived experience, social context, were inseparable. In other words, and this gets back to the way Nathan framed his question, if you were poor immigrant racial minority, broken home, number one, those circumstances really militated against your gaining much literacy. But even if you learn to read and write after a fashion, literacy by itself did not transform your life. You didn't become a great success just because you could read or write. Nor, if you learned to read and write after a fashion and didn't translate that into enormous success, that did not mean you were a failure. Life situations matter more than learning the ability, the skills of reading and writing. Literacy has great potential, but it never exists independently of social contexts. The other thing that our generation, we were very influential for about 20, 25 years, that we stressed was that Different people learned literacy in different ways. We gave a new opening to adult education. Adult education historically has had a rough time. Too many people in education and psychology have assumed with no evidence that if you learn, don't learn your letters by age six, you ain't going to get it. Nonsense. The history of the working class around the world is the history of people coming to circumstances, often other people, 
learning to read at 20, 30, 40, sometimes becoming intellectuals. The story of some of the greatest former slaves in the United States. Boys, Douglas. Read their autobiographies if you haven't. It is the stories of people who learn literacy by themselves, often tricking the children of their slave owners into teaching them the beginnings of the alphabet. And then escaping, finding supportive circumstances, finding materials, books to practice on, a little writing, little paper and pencil, something that most poor people and certainly no slaves or indigenous peoples had opportunities, personality, good luck. So our generation transformed with great influence for a number of years, basic assumptions. This led to a much greater flexibility in teaching children of all ages. It showed in some ways in schools with lessening the relationship between teaching a kindergartner and first grader to read and not worrying about spelling for another year or two. The best teachers, best schools, public, private, whatever, are still teaching. We have my wife and I have a wonderful group. We call them our surrogate grandchildren. They are the children of our younger colleagues and many of my former students who are five, six, seven. They're reading up a storm. They're writing up a storm. But sometimes their parents will send, will email me one of their school papers and send me an English translation because they haven't learned to spell with good teachers, that will come right along. Problem is, and I think I'm foreshadowing Nathan's next question, and I'll ask him to interrupt lightly. If I'm not, we lost some of that thrust. We're back to seeing literacy too narrowly, but even worse, whereas the new literacy studies, as it say two and a half generations, stress that we've got to stick to looking at reading and writing and arithmetic as basics. We have fallen back into the totally fake world of let a thousand literacies flow. Every one of you has seen horse names or advertising or marketed products. The One of the worst and offensive to me is financial literacy. There is no such thing, but it's being now required um, for high school juniors. Um, it translates not into any literacy or finances, but how to fill out your tax return when you're 16 years old. It's a waste of time. God help us, they could be learning a little history and civics or a bit of writing a better sentence. It's marketing. There's a national movement, full-page ad in the New York Times called FL, full Roman um, numeral for 
ALL, FL for All, Financial Literacy for All. It's run by a bunch of banks and for profit online schools. Marketing. Every subject now claims a literacy of its own. You've all run into this in some way or somewhere or another. Every little thing gets distracted from the common basics which cross all lines and disciplines. The success of my initiative that Ohio State did Nathan mentioned in his introduction, the what we call literacy studies at OSU. For 13 years, we were able to bring together hundreds, really hundreds of faculty, staff, few undergraduates and lots of graduate students from all over the university to discuss, debate, share much of what was common between someone in medical school or engineering and someone in English. So much of literacy is based in commonality and teaching broadly across fields functions much better when we're not each building our own separate state. It leads to a segregation and conflict. There is no such thing as physics literacy or health literacy. There is reading, writing, and sometimes arithmetic as applied use practice in all those fields. We have lost ground in, in the 21st century, and I'm trying to bring back the success. I work with many of my own former graduate students who are publishing books. I work with a younger generation of now associate and early full professors across the country, and I'll pause, and I know Nathan wants to asked me about my book that's coming out later this month. This is probably my last statement on this. So, one final word. Um, what's implicit in what I've said so far, let me make explicit. And that's that I have used history to inform all other disciplines in their understanding of history. Too often, we historians do not assert ourselves not just in saying that history is important or foundational, but in demonstrating how history is inseparable from a deep, sophisticated, and applied understanding. We see this every day in the media and our declining American polity. Um, the historical memory of the moment is about minus three weeks. Everything is unprecedented until the next sentence when it's not unprecedented. And I'll stop on that note now because I get easily on, in, onto a soapbox in talking about never had a great sense and history education was never a strong suit, but we've taken enormous backwards in the 21st century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And yeah, so the literacy myth at 30, that was released, I think, uh, in 2010. Um, can you tell us about that? Um, how did your ideas about literacy change through the decades? That's <laughs> um, a, a great question. Um, when the book had its 30th anniversary, I got a number of invitations to give seminars and lectures about it because it was a very influential book. It was read widely, it was translated into other languages. And I decided to, to shape the le- many of the lectures and seminars around a kind of stock taking what had happened um, in those three decades. Part of the literacy method 30 was showing that the book had much more influence than 30-year-old Harvey Graff ever thought his first book would have. It was also in showing the main lines of research that had followed. Um, the literacy myth came out in 79. Shirley Heath's book, Ways with Words, another book that everyone needs to read and has been forgotten. Um, a multi-year ethnography of different white and black urban and rural populations in Florida. Um, Shirley's book came out in 82, I think. She was influenced by my book. The anthropologist Brian Street in England, his book, Literacy in Theory and Practice, came out another year or two later. He was influenced by literacy myths, and Shirley Heath. The pioneering book on the psychology of literacy by Sylvia Scribner and Michael Cole, based on cognitive psychology experiments in Liberia, Africa, came out about 83. We all were in at least general conversation. Shirley became a close friend, Brian became a good friend, um, Scribner and Cole were correspondents. This is pre-email. Many of our listeners today will not be able to imagine a world before email. Just the way my own graduate students for the last 30 years do not believe I wrote books and dissertations on typewriters, but things change. Um, so I could write about the short-term and the longer-term influences. Um, our work collectively from that basis rippled out into much more historical research. And for me, the wonderful opportunity that, for example, Roger Schofield, who joined Peter Laslett and Tony Wrigley at the Cambridge Group at Cambridge University and wrote an article that influenced me years before my graduate work, um, had a number of dissertation students at Cambridge who wrote 
about literacy in other parts of England and Scotland. Typically, people connected each other, connected their graduate students to each other. I have very dear friends who are now retiring, they're a little younger than I am, um, all over England who were Roger, Tony Wrigley, and Peter Laszlo's graduate students, Rab Houston, who wrote fundamental books about literacy in early modern Scotland. And England is one who comes immediately to mind. Um, the human networks and the scholarly networks interconnected. People in Italy and Spain read the literacy myth um, in English and later in translation. They invited me to give lectures and come to conferences. I helped their students. This is how scholarship works in the best sense. So Literacy Myth at 30, and in some ways my new book, um, slightly more than a decade later, does a kind of stock taking. I do some criticism of some of my own things that I saw more complicated and more refined over the years, as one hopes one does. I also, and this is the final part of your question as I remember it, um, had the opportunity to reply to some of my critics. As I'm sure Nathan can understand and other listeners, um, I was attacked for being for attacking the American drink. It was un-American to criticize assumptions about the power of literacy. We know that version. Today, it hasn't gone away. Those were easy. David disproves that. Although some of the people who argued with me and rejected my arguments were not going to be persuaded by David as the way people are not today. I won't make the overly simplistic comparison to the 2020 election. Um, the People who reject all data are few, but they have loud voices. Um, I was criticized for being Michael Katz's student, because Michael was a critic of America as we know it, and was part of his generation and my generation, who believed that we changed the world through research and Criticism, but criticism that was always constructive. When I criticized how literacy was taught and assumptions about it, my goal was to try and have people in colleges of education, teachers, other people understand literacy in a somewhat more sophisticated, more complicated way and do their theories, their research, they're teaching in ways that promote it more broader degrees of more accomplished and general literacy. There are certain foundations, whether you're taking it to digital literacy or numerical literacy, 
or God help us, there's health literacy, there's literacy of the big toe and the second toe. Um, there's something called ethnic literacy and race literacy that have no meaning. People confuse subject matter with literacy, and literacy is not a set of subject matter. So the struggle goes on, and in my recent research, I'm trying to bring back, and I've been working particularly hard in the field of writing studies and composition studies, where the people who teach college freshmen and sophomores to write um, are reminded of how we revised and sharpened and improved thinking and practice in the 80s and 90s, and how much we have slipped, particularly with them being overly concerned about what they call digital literacy, forgetting that it's alphabetic, basic literacy that you're inputting into digital systems. Connections, not oppositions. Um, the battle to see that literacy is a multi-edged sword. It, it can be used to transform people's lives and for social mobility, but it's also used against people. The best example I have of the latter right now is there's a real battle going on in prison education. All that is over banning books. It might give a prisoner the wrong idea. It resembles today's inhumane anti-child campaigns to ban books in the schools because of my understanding of both literacy and children and youth. I'm working with the ACLU across the country, with Pan America, with the Freedom to Read Foundation as a public and applied history. But something else that we don't pay enough attention to among historians. Public history becomes a separate field rather than something that most historians and most professors should do as it is relevant to our studies. For me, it's really a form of teaching beyond or outside the classroom. Yes, those are all great thoughts. Um... Looking at a lot of the demographic areas that you touch upon in the book, um, you know, you have different ethnicities, um, religious backgrounds, you talk about um, gender as well. Are there other literacies that we might be missing um, in terms of research? How, how should we be looking at literacy maybe now or even at your, your research in a, in a different way? Okay, that's a really good, tricky question. Um, my own belief, and there are people who I respect who will disagree with me, is that we do best if we focus primarily, at least for now, on basics and commonality and trace what a, this, someone in physics and medicine and someone in history and English share. And after seeing what we share, then seeing what differences there are because of technology. Mm -hmm. 
as a historian who spent the last 15 years of his life primarily in an English department, I don't have to read the fancy screens that my orthopedic surgeon read when, when I broke my leg two months ago. Um, that world has transformed. But it's a kind of visual literacy, and this is a good example. Um, a very dear friend of mine who's been a pioneering scholar coming out of the arts, Johanna Drucker, has written extensively about what she calls visual knowledge. And she sees this as a use of literacy, a literacy that is influenced by reading and writing, but it is visual. And when you think about this, you know, even reading our, our Western alphabet or other alphabets or the Chinese alphabet or writing on caves is a form of translation, the concept I have tried to write about sometimes, from one simple system to another. Johanna's best short book on this is called Graphesis, G-R-A-P-H-E-S-I-S, um, forms of visual knowledge. And she crosses different kinds of literacy and shows how the visual and what I could call the traditional alphabetic literacies or ability to read, understand, and communicate in different sign systems, how they're connected. So from where I sit and the result of my thinking about this for more than 50 years now, that's what I never thought I would, would, would say, um, is understanding the connections makes possible understanding the differences and I see the power of what's shared as being more important. I don't think we can understand different, I'll use the word, different applications to the digital, to people in English now um, are spending a lot of time with graphic literature, writing graphic literature, studying the combination of the pictorial and the traditional alphabetic. I think that's a really interesting example of how different sign systems and the need to be able to read and write them, to use those words as metaphors, reading and writing, come together. But so too is the large and increasing world of the digital. So integration, not segregation, to use terms that are central to American history. During your teaching career at Ohio State, there have probably been a lot of students that were attracted to you. Um, where are some of your students now? Are they working on literacy? Um, I love to talk about my students because one of the successes, well, a couple things. Um, all my courses were cross-listed in English and history. And for different reasons, they also were cross-listed in education and some other areas. So many of my seminars combine students from three, four, five different 
departments. Um, some of my students took the so-called traditional path. Um, probably the largest single number because of my primary appointment being in the English department, had jobs in some form of writing studies in universities. A um, number of them had published books. Other students who I'm, were very special to me without taking anything away from the first group. Um, uh, a student who grew up in China and came to the United States to do a PhD has a book coming out this December. It will transform how people think about literacy in 20th century China. Um, she called her dissertation The Literacy Myth in China, and I urged her strongly not to call her book that. I did not tell her to call her dissertation. But she shows that literacy, popular literacy, was much more widespread in China than this traditional view that how could people become literate if there were thousands of characters. Turns out, if you have three to five hundred characters, you could become very literate. Um, assumptions got in the way of studying the question. Um, she's on tenure track. If all goes well, the book will be out. In, in December and should be tenured by the end of the year. Um, when she was writing her dissertation, she gave birth to her daughter, and I have visual memories of me, her first name, bringing two-week-old Ashley to my house to talk about dissertation chapter drafts with Ashley sitting on her lap. Ashley goes around the college town they live in now, talking about how she can't wait to buy her, she's nine, she can't wait to buy her mother's book. Um, that's her favorite story. Um, I co-supervised that dissertation with a professor of Chinese history who didn't know anything about literacy. Another story I love to tell is another history student. I co-supervised a, a dissertation on literacy in Turkmenistan. I barely knew where Turkmenistan was at that time, but I learned. That student has done some teaching, but most of her career has been in policy work. Um, she's writing about Russia and Ukraine at the moment. Um, the students in English, um, some of them have written about um, literacy beyond schools, different informal ways of literacy has been taught. Literacy is taught by labor unions, by voluntary neighborhood centers. Some have wrote, written critiques of how writing is taught in universities. Some have written studies about the way literacy is used in propaganda. Um, I have other students particularly from Texas, um, when I wasn't in an English department, but usually my courses were combined across humanities. Um, some of them became professors of literature. A student who I published a book with um, was an urban historian, 
she just retired from her job in Cal State system. Makes me feel even older than I am to have some of my early students retiring now. So they, they've done a, a variety of things. Not all the wanted tenure track jobs have gotten them. There's a function of the market, no matter how strong their research is and how strong the recommendations. Most who hold on did get academic work, although a couple still continue as lecturers rather than tenure track. A very good students from, um, from Ohio State found his best opportunity teaching at our local community college. On one hand, he's a little disappointed, but not usually that he hasn't published. But he's very satisfied with his work with his students. So it's a complicated answer, but our world of graduate studies and people attempting to enter universities is complicated. We don't do as well with that as we should. We could do better. But universities and another whole set of topics have lost their way substantially. Um, we need to rebuild universities. We need to reconnect. Um, we need to rebuild general education with what's common. I want my 21-year-old neighbor friends who are engineers who would have been history majors 30 years ago to have the opportunity. They all say, I really want to read more, but I don't have time. I want their general education courses to be history of science and technology with science and technology. I want them to be taught to write in general and to write in ways of writing reports that they're going to write in their majors and when they get there they all get jobs in engineering and computer science now. Well, let me revise that. Everybody in computer science gets a job. People in some fields of engineering get jobs, but not in all fields. There is an, a STEM myth that the media and universities are not combating. Tremendous number of young people are pressured to go into engineering and not either humanities or social sciences or even the basic sciences because either they or their parents or their counselors think that's the only job. Nobody is paying attention to how many drop out because they don't like it and how many flunk out because they don't do very well because teaching is much poorer in those fields. It's much less valued than it is in the humanities, social sciences, and basic sciences. And I can say and document that without romanticizing the arts and sciences. What about further reading of your work? I know that the um, searching for liter is it searching for literacy? Yes. Um, what, yeah. what I think is my last book on literacy. And I say that hesitantly because I have made statements about the last before. But um, sometime later this, this month, um, I have a book called Searching for Literacy, 
the social and intellectual origins of literacy studies. And it traces how our interest in literacy developed from different fields of knowledge and understanding over, in some cases, 50, sometimes 100 years. Um, the strengths and limitations is a chapter on psychology, a chapter on anthropology, um, chapter on history, chapter on writing and composition studies. I do a constructive critique of what's happened from 50 to 100 years in each of those fields, what we can learn and value from each of them, what we need to put together, integrate, what we need to finally toss aside. And the book ends with a kind of set of principles um, to go forward and they stress my own corrective to the literacy myth. I'm not going to summarize them, and you forgive me, Nathan, but people can buy the book. It's too expensive. Blackwell's in England has the best price with free shipping. Um, with the paperback, the e-edition the e will be out within a week or so, and the paperback will be out within a year. Um, get your local library to buy it, and anyone interested in the subject should read it. Um, it has excellent footnotes in the biography and lots for everybody to argue with. And again, it's a kind of a historian trying to find paths through historical paths through other subjects. My kind of interdisciplinarity. Great. Um, any lasting words for our audience, your audience? Um, well, I'll tell you what I'm telling people who range from six years old to their 80s who want to write better. Practice, 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 revise, develop a small group of readers who you can trust to be always supportive and constructive, but also critical. Everybody, no matter what your job is, if you're writing a journal, if you're writing a family history, if you're an undergraduate or a graduate student, a professor, a new friend, early 30s, he's a lawyer, grew up in poverty in New York City, now lives in Columbus, a mutual friend connected me with Donald, he wants to do publishing about the law, He's teaching me much more about the law. I'm helping him find ways to write that. It's a collective activity. Literacy over the ages, and here I come back to pioneering scholarship in most periods of human history. There were a fairly small percentage of people who could read. They read out loud to larger groups. We see this today in churches where a minister or a cantor or a choir or a reader reads to the congregation. It's how preschoolers and 
early elementary schools is how we take children from three months and read to them. Radically individualizing acts of reading harms everyone. It separates people. It takes what historically has been a collective community, congregational labor, organizing, all kind of organizing activity, and cuts it down to separate individuals. Let's, and here's probably this my sermon for a Friday early afternoon. Um, let's return to the spirit of collegiality, mutuality, collectivity, back to Hall of Prayer, the Cuban Literacy Campaign, the most successful part of the Casper Revolution, each one teach one. The historical roots are profound. Let's get beyond people teaching poetry, reading things out loud, and have that collective spirit. Some of your listeners, perhaps, have taught classes where they have students doing group projects. That's one small way. It's tricky, but it's a way in which learning combines reading, writing, and what people in the literacy field call orality. There was never a passage from an oral culture to a written culture. There was always a shifting degree of interaction. Through most of history, a few readers, the traditional word which I use with heavy quotation marks is enlightened or proselytized or misled or propagandized many other people. It's probably a fitting place for me to end with a kind of mini sermon for a Friday noonish. Yeah. Well, it's been a great um, discussion, and I'm sure the audience will very much appreciate it. I hope so. It's been a lot of fun and enjoyable talking to you, and I hope to other people as well. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, along with Dr. Harvey Graff, thank you, our listeners, for tuning into this podcast today on history and literacy. Stay tuned for more episodes like this one right here on NBN.